Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. So the, the title of the book, The Caretaker, came to me very early on, and I have the feeling that I was probably the last to know that it suggested anything about my life in relation to her work. One of my favorite things about a really good novel is that it puts a spell on you. And what happened with this book is I began to feel like I was getting collected a little bit. I'm Lucas Horner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's pairing Dune Arbus and Barbara Epler. I've known Dune for a number of years now. Her mother is the late photographer, Deanne Arbus, and Dune manages her estate, which we work with at the gallery. But Dune's own work as a writer is singular. She became known for her magazine work during the era of new journalism and Tom Wolfe, and she's produced criticism, plays, and six nonfiction books, including two in collaboration with Richard Avedon. And now she's just published her first novel, The Caretaker a mystery about the fiercely dedicated caretaker of a very eccentric private museum. Dune's novel is wry and powerful, and it believes in the visceral presence of art and objects. Dune's editor is the legendary Barbara Epler of the famed publishing house New Directions, founded by poet James Lachlan. In our conversation, Barbara tells a little of the origin story of how this small publisher came to be so influential. New Directions was the first in the U.S. to publish Pablo Neruda, Roberto Bolaño, W.G. Zabald, Anne Carson, and now Dune Arbus. So I thought we might just start by hearing a little bit about the backstory uh, for this book, Dune, because I've intentionally kept myself in the dark so that some of these questions would be new to me. Mm -hmm. um, but how long were you working on this book? Well, actually, I thought I was writing a different book. I thought I was writing a very large, long, ambitious, multi-peopled book. And one of the people in the book was a, a clerk in an institution. And I've always been touched and intrigued by the people who keep an organization or an institution afloat, but who are unrecognized and unnoticed. And in fact, most of us don't even know what they do or think about what they do. And the only similarity between that character in the big unwritten book and the caretaker is this role or quality, the, 
the kind of unrecognized keeping the thing afloat person. And so I thought, oh, I'll just uh, take a vacation from that book and write a short story about this character, and then I'll go back to the book. And uh, eight years later, I wrote a <laughs> short novel instead. <laughs> but just to, to get even a little more granular, what has your relationship to writing been as a first-time novelist, as it were, at least in the, I don't know how many novels you have written other than the one that's being published? No, this is it. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> I've written things, I would say, intermittently. I was a, a sort of freelance journalist and wrote profiles and articles and criticism. I've been very also interested in people's language and I, in collaboration with Richard Avedon, I wrote two books which actually weren't written because they were all composed of the people I interviewed and what they had to say. And it was like assembling a jigsaw puzzle that seemed to have its own demand about what it was about, but, but it was made out of their words, and I had to... So it had this rule about it. It was like a game. But that then that feels like the kind of thing that would lead naturally into writing fiction in a way, this kind of making room for other people's voices in a project that sort of has or, or presents its own internal logic that you discover the more yeah. deeply you enter into that uh, conversation. Yeah. yeah. Barbara, I will then kind of ask the, the, the follow-up question, which is New Directions doesn't publish too many first-time novelists and not that many novels in general. And, and how did this book find its way to you? Actually, we do publish a lot of novels, but they're almost all translated. Yeah, yeah. So English language novels are pretty rare. But we do publish, we had a debut novelist back in the 90s called John Keane, and we recently brought out another book by him, Counter Narratives. It, it's a brilliant book. And books come to us in all sorts of ways. They come flying in from all sorts of corners. But one way that often happens is friends who are writers, not writers we publish, but are kind of friends. And so two of them one after the other with some months in between. Francine Prose, who's um, wonderful and also a big pal to New Directions and reviews our books and teaches them, and she's always fun. And then Hilton Owls, and so they both kind of I got tapped on the shoulder to, like, pay attention. And just because, you know, we get hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts all the time, and Caretaker just got under our skins. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned some writers when we've spoken about this book. We've talked about Kafka, Barbara, mm -hmm. and you talked about Shirley Jack. I mean, there, there's sort of a couple reference points. And I'm curious what in particular kind of got under your skin as an editor. One of my favorite things about a really good novel is that it puts a spell on you. And what happened with this book is I began to feel like I was getting collected a little bit. Like I was <laughs> like, hmm. You feel like you're, it has a glow and an intensity in it. And then you feel like you're the big moth and you like flapped into this really weird thing. And you're inside a very strange novel and you're in there beating about and, and seeing all of these things that, but you feel like you almost become part of it. It's an odd thing. But I do like that Nina Simone thing of I put a spell on you. <laughs> the book, of course, is called The Caretaker, but Dr. Morgan is a prominent figure both as a person, but also his mental space, the space that he's designed in the building, his museum house. And I'm curious what real world 
if any, inspirations or where that character comes from? Because, of course, what we've heard from you, Dune, is how the caretaker got lifted from this larger novel. But, of course, that is yeah. a, a kernel at the center of a kind of someone else's universe in, in many ways. Yeah. So I have, I don't know at what point I began to discover a whole series of wealthy, eccentric men who had, mostly who were, made their money in other ways, and who assembled collections that felt like they purported to explain the world. The I don't know about who founded the Mutter Museum, but it's a medical museum. And the Barnes Foundation, to some degree, and talk about wills being... <laughs> Complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and no, things not working out the way the dead person conceived of them. And I, I can't think of anybody else at the moment, but I made a whole list, and there are lots of them. Sir John Soane, you mentioned. Oh, yeah, yep. right. Yeah. While I was in the midst of writing this, and I don't know at what point, I visited a number of these places. Um, but I divorced it in my mind from this particular man who does, or I should put it in the past tense since he's dead when the book begins, who really believed that objects of whatever kind or nature, man-made or nature-made, contained the meaning of the whole universe and that he, if he could only enlighten the world about how this secret functioned, everybody would be better off. And each object, I've only thought of this recently, but each object in his mind was in and of itself mute until it could be seen in apposition or collusion to another object, either a similar or an entirely different object. So he was a curator, essentially, and was giving the objects their voice. Or at least that is what the caretaker believes he believed. So there's a lot of getting your information through other people who may or may not be. Yeah. And you should describe what's in the collection for people who haven't read the book yet. Because, you know, it's high and low. It's sort of like a snapshot of a representative object from everything the world can produce, as it were. Whether it's a natural object, an right. artifact, a shoelace, a watch without a band. But I'm curious how you imagined it or, or where, where you think the impetus to make something like that might come from. I don't know. You put it so well. I've been asking myself lately or possibly thinking about doing this, to what degree do I believe this? And I do. I think objects retain bits of history of what's, you know, happened to them and who's been around them and not necessarily to be uncovered, but I think they acquire a kind of uh, totemic importance just by being on this earth with the rest of us. 
I'm just thinking about this is a little bit of a sideline back to the Sir John Stone Museum and things like that, but or the Barnes Foundation. Because I don't know if I've even told you this, but when I was first at New Directions, so New Directions was founded by James Lachlan, who came from the Steel Fortune, but he really hmm. kept working his whole life for 60 years. He was the leader. He chose everything. He barely let us choose anything. It's really his vision. I feel like the caretaker now, kind of. But, um, <laughs> but when I was just out of college, when I first started, there was this great, our old editor-in-chief, Peter Glasgow, was like a true intellectual, like he taught himself Hebrew when I knew him, he taught himself Greek when I knew him. He was always fun, like he's, he was a kind of a red diaper baby. And I had never read like Prince Kropotkin, and so he got me to read like the anarchists. And at some point he got me to realizing that Berkman's memoirs were out of print. And he, he knew J.L. liked girls more than boys, sort of. So he had me ask J.L. And, the, and J.L. is 10 feet tall, so I was staring up. And Peter's my size. And I was like, hey, J.L., it's actually a really good book, Berkman's Memoirs. And J.L. looked out at me and goes, Berkman, Berkman, he's the one who shot Uncle Henry. <laughs> so his, his uncle was Uncle Henry Clay Frick. It's, so that I have this house museum in my <laughs> life, which I have never thought of. That's so funny. Anyhow, that was my tale for the day on that one. Um, yeah, we didn't publish it. <laughs> I was like, oh, bad idea. Bye. <laughs> but I, I wanted to go back to that idea. You said it beautifully, Dune, of meaning emerging through the kind of collusion of objects. You said you kind of have been asking yourself, do you in fact believe or do you inhabit that philosophical system or approach to the world? And are you also someone who understands meaning as a kind of emergent property that is that does come out of the juxtaposition and collusion and kind of conversation between different kinds of objects? Yes, I think I do really think that. And also the reverse, that, you know, a bad curator can make invisible something very evident. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that ties into the question of to what degree your experience with and around visual art plays a role in the formulation of that worldview. I guess I've, to some degree, seen it played out in front of me. But in the writing of the book, and I think this was probably very necessary, so this is flirting around the matter of my taking care of my mother's work for a significant part of my life. So the, the title of the book, The Caretaker, came to me very early on. And I have the feeling that I was probably the last to know that it suggested anything about my life in relation to her work. And, and maybe this is very important, to be, uh, to be working on something and be dumb. And I think this is true for many artists. I tend to be very suspicious of, of work that knows where it's going and why it's being made or ha has any sort of agenda. The best thing about it is the surprises it gives you. So I don't know if I answered your question. I don't remember it now. <laughs> no, no. I, in fact, I wasn't even going to talk about until later sort of the role of of your mother's art photography in your life. I, I was, even before we get to that, just interested in the kind of role of visual art as a... So 
a lot of the writing is the writing you might encounter from someone who is used to looking at and describing or cataloging a visual artwork, right? What I, what I call ekphrastic writing. And it's part of what I like about the book so much. The way people are described is almost clinical at times. But of course, it's a way of using, it's a way of creating, using those details or embedding them in a narrative, giving them narrative thrust so that suddenly the objects take on a significance um, that you wouldn't perceive if they didn't exist in that flow that you're describing them in. And, um, and I guess, you know, I, I wanted to ask more about your relationship to visual art in general and, and to what degree you feel like that kind of writing or the criticism or the freelance journalism, whatever it is, played a significant role in how you think about uh, looking. I worked with Richard Avedon for a really long time. And so I was looking at his pictures and <laughs> they were looking back at me. And so I guess, I, I, but it seems so much like something in the air, which is a bad thing to say at the moment, that I, I'm not sure how it invaded my psyche, all this exposure or even more than exposure, sort of um, entanglement with visual When you things. say something in the air, something in the air right now in a way, is that what you're also... No, something in the air in, in the sense of which, in the sense that I absorbed it. It's a language that both anthropomorphizes, but mm. very subtly, you know, without actually imbuing or cathecting the objects with much, it somehow signals that they have a life through the intense attention to detail. I'm really pleased that you said that because it was very important to me not to pretend that the objects were human, not, not to have them act, and yet to make them vibrate with... It's hard for me to say exactly how it works, but it does have a real pull. It's what I meant about being the moth. I mean, the, those objects in there and the caretaker himself and just, I mean, it's true it's not overt at, for a long time, but then once the caretaker gets really into it, it does get to the point where there's this quote, the, the whole place has come alive again and has found its voice and is chattering away in its native language to the solitary listener, as if he's the key to like unlocking the animism of everything. And then that he starts, well, I don't want to give it away. <laughs> Let me not do spoilers. But um, I found it really interesting that the lushness and the jungliness of the writing itself, the multi-clausal, extra descriptive. I mean, we pared that down a teeny bit together, but that was one of the draws, that it's busy and seems so fecund. And then it moves. To me, it, it was very convincing how it, the caretaker first comes in and he's like barely there in a certain way. He's like something just other people are reacting against and... He's just kind of going through. And then suddenly he and the house start, it's like um, alchemical to me. And so that's where you've got, at least to me, that's where the spell gets into like fourth gear and leaves you very somewhere you weren't when you started the book. In terms of those sentences, the plot and the characters, I feel in retrospect at least, really came from the sentences. Uh, it wasn't like there was this character who was driving things along. And the sentences, each sentence made a demand on the next sentence or sometimes on the middle of the sentence that I had just written that I felt had to be qualified or contradicted or that's where all the multi-clauses come from. But it's also that sense of fecundity, like even at the very beginning and you open the book with this landscape of the changing Chelsea sort of neighborhood. Yeah. 
It's as if the buildings were mushrooms or something rather than buildings. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You, you, of course, have found yourself, Barbara, in this position where you are trying to continue a legacy, but of course, very much crafting something that I would imagine reflects your tastes and the tastes of the people who work with you. And maybe you could talk about that balancing act a little bit, or, or maybe it's no longer a balancing act. Maybe at a certain point, you just say, I saw to it that Lachlan's vision was realized while he was in charge. And when the baton was passed on, now it's different. I'm curious about that. I mean, my idea has always been, I always love that thing in The Leopard where the nephew says, in order to stay the same, we have to change. But the idea is to stay the same. And he really, he had a few really, to me, fantastic, he had fantastic taste. And I just like the kind of books he liked. And, and then there's that. And that does make a legacy. And it does make a kind of, like a path. He really did clear the ground. And then it also makes you feel that you can, he had two things that he would describe when he read something that was really interesting to him. And one, he got, he studied with Gertrude Stein, and she would say when she read something really new, she would hear a bell ring. And he liked to hear that bell ring. And, but he also had another thing of, you can feel it when the top of your scalp moves. Like he said that about Nabokov, and he was his first publisher here. And JL had a certain idea, and it was, he spoke six languages. So it was a very educated idea. But, but he did have this idea that New Directions is supposed to be a place where writers can do their experiments in public. And the last thing he was interested in was receive forms. That said, he reissued like The Great Gatsby. He reissued a lot of Henry James. He reissued a lot of modern classics that had gone out of print during the war and the Depression. So, And so the idea is to take those lessons and then adapt them to the time in which we all are, essentially. Yeah, and try. There really was this idea that, say, like at the beginning, like when we first read Sabold, it was like a new thing. We hadn't read anything like that. And even people, like we got Susan Sontag on board, and she was like, it's indescribable, and it's nothing I've ever read before, but it's a classic already. And so that whole, that you have an idea about genre, but I should also say, we're totally a group. Nobody makes these decisions on our own. And it's everyone pretty much gets on board. And everyone is sometimes the town crank about a particular project. But like, if, <laughs> if, if six of my colleagues really believe in a book, and it's not my thing, I'll try to see my way around to their point of view. But, and we try to work on a consensus basis, because it's just nine of us. And so you really need everybody on board to work. And um, yeah, so this book had a lot of very ardent, because I'd been sitting out a little while and then I carried it away to, on a trip. And then meanwhile- Yeah, you know, I got to go on vacation before it even- <laughs> <laughs> It had a nice time in a hammock. It's so like Declan really loved it. Lori really loved it. Tyna got really behind it. So the people who read, and we all read, but some of us are really editorial. That's our- main bailiwick. We talk about everything, and there's so many things we can't publish because of our size. And then you want to stay with an author if you discover them and you think they're great, and even if they don't necessarily sell. And that's also the JL way. <laughs> he really thought that you would, that great writers, it's not necessarily now that they're going to be really perceived. It could be in a generation or two. I would want to have asked that question more explicitly, and, and we don't have to dwell on it necessarily, but that how have you navigated the kind of incredibly intense labor of realizing and even in some ways constructing a, a vision or a way of being for a body of work, for your mother's body of work in the world? Of course, with collaborators and writers, and there's so much enthusiasm among art lovers for that work. And obviously, I want to be totally clear that 
I, I see the novel and that work as completely separate entities. It's just interesting that you seem to have done both things. It's almost like reading the novel back against, as you said, aspect of your, let's call it professional life. Well, my situation as compared to the caretaker situation was I had the great good fortune to know the person whose work I was, uh, and to know the person whose work I was left in charge of for the caretaker, which is a problem for him, I think. <laughs> he left with himself and his idea of this other person that he never met except through written work. So I have been very absorbed, mainly from a negative point of view. <laughs> you know, what needed to be prevented in order that this work not, and I did feel, not permanently disappear, not in the sense of uh, being forgotten, but in the sense of being completely misread. So I've embraced the word no a lot, but also on occasion found a way that I thought was lucid about how to let it out there and make it clearer than it apparently was with so many misunderstandings out there. Dune, maybe you would like to read a little something. Figured it's a good moment for that. I could read a little something. On a rainy, windy afternoon in early August, at the appointed hour of the appointed day, a bedraggled man in a dripping Macintosh and wide-brimmed leather hat presented himself on the Morgan Foundation's doorstep for his examination. He paused there and leaned forward, studying the inscription on the shiny brass plaque beside the front entrance, touching the raised letters, tracing the shapes with his fingers in a kind of benediction before pressing the buzzer. Moments later, the intercom erupted with some bursts of static in answer to which he ventured what he imagined to be the desired reply by offering his name and adding, I'm here for the interview, with an inflection that made a question of it. The door unlocked with a click, admitting him. Once across the threshold, having shut the door behind him, he removed his hat, laid down the satchel he'd been sheltering under his coat, and shook himself like a drenched dog before looking around to get his bearings. The newly installed sliding doors stood wide open, affording a largely unobstructed view of the dim interior that extended to the rear of the building some hundred feet away. All at once, as if awakened by his arrival, lights came on in the far room. Someone was striding forward to greet him, a powerful-looking young man with a blonde crew cut, savagely trimmed as if the mere existence of hair betrayed a lack of discipline that had to be expunged, and the brusque, vaguely threatening aspect of a bouncer or a bodyguard who introduced himself as Mrs. Morgan's special assistant. They're ready for you. You can leave your wet things here, he said, gesturing toward an old-fashioned wooden coat tree by the front door. The visitor did as he was told while his escort watched, making no move to assist. Right this way, he said, 
at last, jerking his head in the direction from which he'd come. Follow me, it's upstairs. He led the way with the visitor trailing behind, holding the satchel against his chest, marveling at his surroundings and emitting the occasional odd, inadvertent gasp or groan of appreciation as he went. When they reached the landing, his escort pushed ahead, showing the way to Morgan's study, recently appropriated by the Foundation Board as its temporary headquarters, which lay behind one of several identical doors. Grasping the knob, he knocked twice, clearly a signal rather than a request for admission, and without waiting for a reply, opened the door and stood aside, silently inviting the visitor to enter. The room was dimly lit by a chandelier of colored glass grapes and by many small lamps nestled within the bookshelves or placed on the end tables or on the floor, creating little pools of light that only accentuated the depth of the surrounding shadows. For the present purpose, the six-member board had been whittled down to three, two men and a woman, each of whom had enjoyed a prior association with Dr. Morgan, who had volunteered to serve on the hiring committee. They sat side by side, facing the door behind a refectory table at the far end of the room, each with a neat stack of papers and a blank legal pad. Looking up at the new arrival as he entered, they wore the grateful expression of people whose long-awaited moment has finally materialized. They welcomed him, thanked him unconvincingly for coming, introduced themselves in a chorus that drowned out each name in the succeeding one and invited him to sit down. An oak chair on his side of the table was the only unoccupied seat available, and he obediently made use of it. A banker's lamp on the table, its green shade tilted in his direction, obscured his view of the committee members, and gave the event the atmosphere of an interrogation. Nice. Will you just say a word or two about why you picked that section? I wanted to, I mean, I think Barbara and I both wanted something to be read from the interview, and it's difficult because it's long. And um, and I like the way it began. <laughs> Dude and Barbara, thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to talk about the book. Yes, really. <laughs> Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.